The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Rachel Holtzkenner now presents her lecture, How to Win Friends and Influence People the Jewish Way. The irony is that I don't consider myself to be a person who's good at winning friends and influencing people at all. In fact, it's probably one of my deepest insecurities and vulnerabilities that I feel like I don't have what it takes to be that magnetic force that attracts a lot of people to be friends with me and is super influential. You know, like those people and they sit around to talk like people slowly gather around them and then a few minutes later they have like a whole circle of people listening. Those are people I'm very jealous of. Maybe you're one of them. Something about social skills is like, you either have it or you don't. <laughs> Some things you just can't learn. So I wish I had that. But I don't consider that to be one of my greatest uh, fortes. I wish it was. Let's talk about what we could learn, the learnable part of developing our social skills, winning friends and influencing people. Of course, that name comes from Dale Carnegie's famous, very famous book that I read as a teenager and was, was so taken by. One example that he writes in his book that I've always remembered is, he says like this, you're pulled over by a cop and um, for speeding. Oh, you know what's for speeding. So what do you tell the cop? You say, everybody else was speeding. Why'd you pull me over? And uh, the cop says, well, I pulled you over. I chose to pull you over, whatever the cop says. No, you were, you were going faster than everybody else. And then you get into a little bit of a you know, back and forth, a little power struggle with the cop, and, and he still writes you the ticket. And Dale Carnegie says, no, that's not, that's not the approach, because you're, you're immediately putting the cop on the defense. So what you need to say is, officer, thank you so much for stopping me from harming myself and other people. I was speeding. That's, that's not okay. That's not safe. Thank you for stopping me. And is there any way that you can make this be, you know, just like a warning for this time? And then you'll have a much better chance of getting off the hook. I thought, wow, that was, that's great advice, not just for getting over, not just for uh, getting out of speeding tickets, which unfortunately I have my fair share of speeding tickets, but uh, for anything. Because Dale Carnegie writes that people don't like criticism, and when you put them on the defense, then they're automatically going to think about how to protect themselves. How often do we do that with children and adults? And we want to get our point across, and we want to do it in the strongest possible way. But unfortunately, that comes back to bite us, because that makes the person even more defensive and less open to hearing what we have to say. So I like that point, and I liked a lot of the things that he wrote in his book. I thought they were very smart and very telling. Well, today we're here to look about what is the Jewish approach. And does this premise of winning friends and influencing people even exist 
in Jewish values in the Torah? Is that something that we're looking to, to do? Is that a goal in life? So that's what we're going to explore in this hour that we have together. So I want to open up with a story that the Talmud tells us that you have in your source book here. The Talmud Tractate Tumid, Mesechas Tumid, page 31b. Well, in our book, it's page 2. And uh, this is a very fascinating story about Alexander the Great, the famous Greek emperor, conqueror, who made Macedonia into the biggest world empire at the time by conquering much of Europe, the Middle East, and even into, uh, even into Asia, the, and battling and overcoming the Persian Empire. And part of, his, part of his conquest trail was Judea, Israel. And this was a little bit tricky because the Jews in Judea were supporting, supported the Persian Empire because it was this Persian Empire who allowed them to go back and build the second temple and help them to that means. A aside from the fact that Jews are always nationalistic and loyal to the gov government, unless the government is, you know, out to get them, which happens also pretty often. And uh, people had told Alexander the Great, yeah, the Jews, they're, they're your enemies. They're not going to support you. They're not like other nations that are looking to support the winning side. They have integrity. They're supporting the, the government that allowed them to be there. So Alexander the Great was already a little bit wary of the Jews in Judea. But then something extraordinary happened when he met the priest Shimon HaTzadik who came to greet Alexander and he recognized Shimon HaTzadik as the man from his dreams and he right away knew that this was a very holy saintly man, a wise man and he, he even got off his, his own horse to, out of deference and respect for Shimon HaTzadik and thus began a very positive relationship between the Greek emperor Alexander the Great and the Jewish people that lived in Israel at the time. To the extent that Alexander the Great would bank on the, peop the Jewish people's wisdom. So the Talmud tells us that Alexander the Great asked 10 questions to the Jewish sages or the sages of the South, which is another way of referring to the Jewish sages. So here are three things that he asked them, three of the 10. Omar lehen ma yavid inush what should a person do to ensure that they will live? Amrule, they said to him, kill yourself. They didn't say, like, eat healthy food, exercise every day. They just said, you know, straight out, kill yourself. Okay, he didn't, he didn't argue. Next. What should a person do if he wants to die? That's easy. I don't know. Take cyanide. <laughs> Stop eating. He should keep himself alive. Again, very counterintuitive, surprising, refreshing answers that they gave him. The commentaries say that when they said kill yourself, what they meant is be frugal. Try to lead a minimalistic life, and that will actually help you live. Like, for example, don't overeat. That will help you live. 
How do you die by leading, as it says here, an indulgent life? You try so hard to live and live it up and live it up, mm, that's going to kill you. That's going to do you in. And again, Alexander the Great didn't say anything to disagree with him. But here we get to the last thing that he asked them. Omar Lahen, he said to them, What should a person do to be well accepted by other people? Okay, or to gain friends, winning friends. Umru, they said, Yisne Malka Vishultan. Hate people in power, kings and authorities. Hate kings and authorities. And I'll just stop here for a minute. Alexander was a king. <laughs> he was the greatest king. He was the greatest author authoritative figure. So that's a little bit offensive. Hate kings. Like the president comes to you and says, well, what's, what's your advice for uh, gaining popularity? Hate presidents and politicians. Okay. <laughs> I guess that means me. Additionally, like what kind of advice is that? Why, how in the world is hating people in authority connected to gaining popularity amongst other people? I mean, maybe if you're hating the same politicians that other people hate, then you have something in common, you know, like common enemies make good friends. But he's not saying hate some politicians. He's saying hate all people in authority. So now everybody's going to hate you. Whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you hate. You hate everybody. So who can like you? And again, what in the world does that have to do with gaining friends? I didn't see that bit of advice in uh, Dale Carnegie's book. Now this... To this piece of advice, Alexander the Great had like a visceral pushback. He was like, no, I don't think so. Every other thing that they asked him, he accepted, even though it was a pretty, they were surprising pieces of advice. Like, you have to die in order to live, you have to live in order to die. He didn't ask them, can you explain what you mean? He got it. When it came to this one, he had this seemingly visceral reaction, at least according to the way the Talmud writes it. And he said right away, he says, Omar Lahai, he said, nah. My advice or my method for gaining friends is much better than yours. What you need to do is exactly the opposite. You need to be you need to appease people in authority. And that will help you because then you can use the good that will be accessible to you because of your good standing with the people in authority to then pass on to other people. You have connections. You have friends in high places. So people will want to be connected to you because you have friends in high places. And that was where the conversation ended, at least the way the Talmud relays it to us. So... From Alexander's answer, we can kind of understand the initial response and advice given by the Jewish sages. He was saying that the more connections you have, the more people will be attracted to you. And that could have been very telling about his own life, the people that he was friends with, the people that wanted to be connected to him. 
the more they were connected to him and in good standing with him, the more people can, were able to access good and, and put their friends in positions of power. Like, if I'm on good standings with Alexander the Great, then I can maybe become independent or the governor of this particular town and I could put all my siblings and besties and cronies in as the, the noblemen of the town or the province or the city. So that was what Alexander saw to be very true. And the Jewish sages said, no, actually the opposite. You should hate people in authority. Now, I just mentioned before that Jews were na are, are known to be nationalistic. There's a special blessing that we say when we see a king. Many, in many synagogues, they'll say a blessing to protect the president or the, the ruler. So this is not like a common precedent that Jewish people are known to hate all politicians, hate everybody in authority, Jew or non-Jew. People in authority are given respect by Jewish people. But in this context of making friends, specifically in this context, the Jewish sages said, you should hate your connections, your people in high places. H hate that as an asset when it comes to making friends. Meaning, at least this is the way I understand it, look at relationships as beneficial for the relationship itself. Don't think about the fringe benefits. Don't think about what can I, how can I put myself in a good position to gain popularity? Nah. That fakeness, hated. When you can come to understanding what real friendship is, then people will be attracted to you. So what do I have to bring to the table in a relationship with a person or with many people? Nothing, at least nothing extrinsic, nothing outside of just me. What I can bring to the table is me, not any good funneled from people in high places. And that's a very attractive character, but very hard. Very, it's very hard to rely on the fact that I can bring me to the table and that's good enough. And to Alexander the Great, that certainly wasn't good enough. He didn't accept it, and he immediately said, no. I will go back. I'll accept your other pieces of advice, wonderful, wise. But in this case, I will revert back to my normal way of being, which is looking at relationships as a means to bring me some external benefit. Just me and you having a relationship, what good is that? But if I could help you and you could help me, now we're talking. Now there's something beneficial. So what does the Torah have to say about winning friends? What does the Torah have to say about social skills? I didn't see anywhere in the Torah the Talmud, not that I'm proficient in them, but uh, any idea of uh, winning friends. But it does say in the Talmud that one should acquire a friend. Acquire a friend. I wonder if that was a consideration by Dale Carnegie. How to buy friends and influence people. What does that mean to buy a friend? And what does it mean to, to have a friend, to value a friend? Well, 
the Torah gives us a commandment about friends, a very famous commandment. In fact, arguably the most important commandment in the whole Torah, which is love your fellow, your friend, as yourself. So we have a commandment to love other people. But how is that a skill? So what I want to look at tonight is some of the ideas taught in Tanya, chapter 32 of Tanya, that unpacks this mitzvah of loving your fellow as yourself and perhaps makes it into some skills, some things to do in order to foster a positive relationship with other people. So the Tanya tells us as follows. And this you can find on page three of your source book here. Uh, we're going to look at the bottom second half of page three. And here the Alter Rebbe writes as follows in chapter 32 of the Tanya. Ki me'achar shegufo nimas u'mesoev etzlo the first thing that it's important to do is to look past the external trappings in the other person. What the Tanya calls the body. The language here is the body is after the body is disgusting to you, you're turned off by the body. Now, the Alter Rebbe is not talking about our physical body. Our physical body is not, is holy, is there to be utilized and, and elevated and is the vessel, a holy vessel for our soul. The body represents the external part of the other person. When you look at a person, what you see about them is their body. What's deeper than their body? Their personality. Many times, teenagers will refrain from being friends with other people because they don't like their body. Literally, the way they look is different than the way I look. Or other external trappings about your family, your social status. What about their personality? I guarantee you if those two people were trapped in a room or spent a month together in overnight camp and they got to learn a, bit, a little bit more about each other's personalities, they would see a whole, new, a whole new person once they look past the body, the external part of the person. So the first thing is be turned off by my fixation by the body. I've seen from past experience in myself and in other people that there's so much more to a person than what meets the eye. What about what's going on inside of them? What about their personality? What about their drive? What about their soul? Who knows how great it is? Now, this is a very interesting wording, very in interesting usage of, of language here. Instead of saying, when it comes to another person's soul, Think about the fact that their soul is great. The Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, says when it comes to the soul, who knows how great it is? Now, that doesn't mean maybe their soul is great, maybe their soul is not great. No, it's, it's a soul. 
God gave them life. God gave them a part of himself. They must be great. They must be beautiful, vibrant, colorful, have a unique mission to accomplish in this wor- in, on this world. Hashem loaded them with strengths, with intelligence, with good, go- a good nature, gold inside of them. Solid gold, that's their inside. But who knows how great they are? And I want to suggest that this is implying that a person should think about the good in another person and then challenge themselves with this thought. That's only the good that I know. And that must be just the tip of the iceberg. There must be so much more greatness to this person that I don't know. And I think we can see this to be true when it comes to ourselves. Because nobody really knows how much we're struggling, how much we've struggled to come to the point that we have right now. Someone may compliment us. Wow, you look so nice. You have a smile on your face today. They don't know how much work it took for me to show up and put a smile on my face. They don't know the struggles that, that, that are going on in the recesses of my heart behind closed doors. And the same is true with another person. I could identify, and I should identify, good in another person. And then I need to challenge myself to say, but really, I don't know how great that person is. I'm getting a glimpse into their greatness. I'm seeing the tip of the iceberg, and I'm assuming that there's so much more that is respectable about this person. So really, here we have three social skills in order to generate a good relationship with other, per- with other people. Not a good relationship that will win us friends in order for another, another ultimate goal to be met. I want to be popular so that I can grow my business. I want my social media page to grow so that I can generate more popularity or status. No. I want to connect with another person because God wants me to. What are the skills involved in good connection with other people? Number one, looking past the exterior, the things that make us different. As soon as I'm met with that feeling like I can't relate to this other person, there's so many differences between us, challenge myself to look past that. Number two, to recognize the good in another person and then to tell myself what I'm seeing is just a little bit, just the tip of the iceberg. And number three, a third social skill is spelled out for us in the next line, which I'm going to read here, bottom of page three, second to last line. And therefore, all Jewish people are called brothers siblings, when it comes to our soul, we're all really siblings. It's just the body, our bodies that separate us, that make us feel like we're distinct, like I can't be close to the other person. There's so many differences between us. Looking at another person as being interconnected with me. We are siblings. In a healthy sibling relationship, 
when one sibling is successful, the other sibling, well, maybe there is always a twinge of jealousy, but less so than when it, com than when it comes to somebody who I'm not related to. They're not on, even on my team, you know? At least my sibling has a nice house. It's a win-win. We are all interconnected. I need you and you need me. You know, they say, takes all types to make up a family. If everybody in the family was the same type, that would be boring. You need the funny one, the intellectual one, the spiritual one, just like the human body. The human body is made up of all different body parts, limbs, organs, and all of that is necessary. So when it comes to another person, and when I notice the differences between me and the, me and the other person, but I'm pushing myself to look past the differences and see what we have in common and, and, and look past what I feel is not respectable about the person and really trying to find the things that are respectable. I also need to recognize that the differences between me and this other, and this other person are intentional, they are important, and it's specifically the differences between us that makes me value the other person because it takes all type. It takes all types in one family. We're brothers, meaning we're two pieces of a puzzle. We need each other. God needed this person, obviously, that's why he created that person. God needed me with our differences, and yet we are connected. In a short, in a nutshell, we can say that the Tanya says the two best social skills are respect and connectedness. And that when you meet another person, try practicing those two things, feeling that I respect you and feeling that I'm connected to you, especially when it's hard, especially when you don't like that person or they trigger you. Let's talk for a minute about how that could play out when it comes to uh, communication, talking to another person and integrating these two principles. Who knows how great you are? meaning you're greater than I even realize. And we are siblings. We're connected. We're very connected. So very often we can talk at a person instead of to a person, especially when we have something that we really want to share, whether it's good or bad meaning whether, whether it's something that we feel is important or what we feel like, or, or it's something that we feel is uh, in conflict with the other person. And yet, if we were talking to somebody that we would naturally respect, we naturally recognize their greatness. We naturally would say, wow, who knows their greatness? I mean, I know a little bit of their greatness. I wonder how they, I wonder how they, interact and, and, and deal with the rest of their life. I would always be taking into consideration how the person is going to absorb what I'm going to say. I would always couch it in a way that I feel would be appropriate for this respectable person that I'm talking to. How do I bring those elements of respect into a relationship with somebody that I don't necessarily look up to? Or maybe a person in a position that's 
seemingly inferior to me. Maybe it's a child, a student, an employee. Checking in with another person during a conversation is a very valuable tool to, to generate and show respect. Before I even begin a conversation, to feel it out, to ask, where are you right now? What's going on in your world? After a conversation, did that make sense? How do you feel about it? What that's saying, in other words, is I value not just what I had to say, but your perception of what I have to say. And of course, articulating what it is that is respectable about the other person, which could be hard if you have a, a heavy heart towards the person, you're resentful towards them, or they've triggered you. But to authentically, genuinely notice what it is that is valuable in this other person, this other person that the Tanya says is truly a soul, solid gold inside. Who knows how great they are? Forcing myself to bring that to mind and to articulate it is an incredible tool of bringing this, so to speak, social skill of the Tanya into a very tangible expression in the relationship. What about the second, the connectedness? We are all siblings. I'm looking at you and I'm saying, maybe we just met. Maybe we were just, maybe we differ about politics. Maybe we are, you know, I'm the teacher, you're the student, I'm the boss, you're the, you're the client. How do I generate that sense of closeness into every, every relationship? There's a story about a, uh, a, a chassid, a Torah scholar and, 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 and warm, saintly man named Rabbi Mendel Futterfass. When he was coming to America, it may have been one of the first times that he had come over from, from Europe, from Russia, he was sitting next to a Jewish man on, on the plane. And he said to... He, he said to this person sitting next to him, he said, you Jewish, me Jewish. Or maybe he said in the opposite, me Jewish, you Jewish. We have that in common. Me to fill in, you to fill in. In his the only way of communicating those, that concept that I put on to fill in and, and I'd love for you to put on to fill in. And surprisingly, the person sitting next to him agreed to put on tefillin. And even more surprisingly, Remendel Futterfass and this man stayed in touch and developed uh, a very warm, long-lasting relationship. But it all started from that sense of 
we have so much in common. Whatever I have, you have. And if I could share something with you, I would like to do that. Finding things that I have in common with another person is a way of bringing this idea of we are siblings, we have one father, in the mo to, to a very practical, tangible expression. Fr so could be something uh, that's just on the surface, something circumstantial about my life that you have in common with me. It could be something deeper. It could be respecting the fact that your struggle is in some way comparable to my struggle. So even though I'm here to counsel you for your struggle, I recognize the fact that we are all here to struggle and overcome our struggles. I have it in my way, and you have it in your way. How different is that to me standing on a pedestal, sitting in my ivory tower and, and giving somebody advice without that closeness? without that sensation of av echad l'kulana, we have one father. I'll give you a little, a little silly example. My, my children are often struggling to get out of the house in the morning on time to get to school. And I feel very strongly that they need to be, that they, I want them to be in, at, on time for school. And sometimes they say, Mommy, you know, you never get angry. The only thing that gets you really mad is when we're late for school. Because, like, you know, as the minutes tick by, I'm like, get out of the house. But I forgot one more thing. Get out of the house right now. And I'll literally stand by the door and I can feel my blood boiling. Or maybe if I'm driving them to school, you know, then my blood is boiling in the car. And... Um, one day I had this epiphany. I thought to myself, you know, I, I'm trying to convey to them that every single moment is precious, and especially in the morning when they get to school, they're praying. I don't want them to miss out on those prayers. And I also have a struggle when it comes to time management. My struggle is to light Shabbat candles before the time or exactly that first minute that it says on the calendar to light. Because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I have time for one more thing to do. And, you know, there's that 18-minute leeway that you're not supposed to use. But in this case, I have to use it because I need to just pull that one thing out of the oven. Put that one thing away because you're not allowed to use it on Shabbos. And it doesn't matter what time Shabbos comes in. If Shabbos comes in at 5 or 8, I still always have that one last thing that I need to do, even though the minutes of Shabbos are precious. We're supposed to add the 18 minutes to Shabbos to extend it. So here I am preaching to them about their lack of time management because imagining that this is like so easy. All you need to do is it's black and white. Get out of the house. Be where you're meant to be on time. But it's a struggle for them and it's a struggle for me too. I get it. I even made this magical deal with myself. I said, you know what? If you light the Shabbat candles on that moment or before that moment, you will see your children naturally out of the house on time without you even having to tell them because Hashem is like giving you a message through your children. So once you, you clean up your act, he won't need to give you that message through your children anymore. 
Once I had that thought, that epiphany, my approach to my children was a lot softer. I still tried to do everything that I could to make them get out of the house on time. But that judgmentalism, that sense of what is wrong with you? Why can't you get your act together? It's so logical. It's so easy to do the right thing. Not really. I know from my own life that it's not so easy. I am with you in your struggle. So when it comes to looking at another person, finding what is similar about your life or about your struggles, and when appropriate, verbalizing it, we're able to create this bond, this friendship that the Tanya speaks about, a friendship that's not there to further my career or to win me any brownie points, a friendship that's important as an end in itself because it's a mitzvah, because part of my mission in this universe is to connect with other souls. Just like a fire gravitates to another fire, a soul gravitates to another soul. And as we've seen from experience, all the money in the world can't bring us the same joy that strong relationships can bring us. That's really where it's at. What about influencing people? First of all, why do I need to influence people? Why is that a thing? Well, I know why people want to read How to Win Friends and Influence People and many other books in that genre because influencing people is, uh, can make you a lot of money. If I can influence people to buy my product, to buy into my idea, then that's a wonderful thing. And like I said, that's, not some, that's a talent that people have, and I'm, I'm very envious of people that have that talent naturally. But is influencing people a mitzvah? Is it a Jewish thing, or is it just a way to make money? Who says I'm supposed to be influence people? Maybe people are supposed to influence me. Maybe it should be how to win friends and be influenced by people. You know what they say, that a good marriage is uh, one of the telltaling signs of a good marriage is when each spouse allows themselves to be influenced by the other. So you kind of melt, mold, or bring together your, your perspectives. After having discussed it for long enough, you can see their perspective, they can see your perspective, you influence each other. And yet I think there is value to influencing people. Because just like what I have to bring to the relationship is not the people that I know, not the favors that, you can do, that I can do for you, but what I bring to the table is me. That takes a lot of confidence to believe that that's good enough. Similarly, the light that Hashem gave me to shine in this world is something that is unique to me. And therefore, if I can influence people in a positive way and in the way that only I know how, that is, that's a very, very good thing.
doesn't mean that I'm not also influenced by people or by the right people. But I also have an influence, a light to shine. One of my mentors once told me, Rachel, you need to be a fan of your own light. First, I thought, wow, that sounds so arrogant. I don't think I can, I don't think I can try that on for size. But I thought about it a lot. Hashem gave you a light to shine. It's important to be a fan of your own light. So how do you do it? How should we do this? Well, the go-to way of influencing people is often through control. Because we don't like when people are, you know, spinning out of our influence, especially when they're close to us. Control means that I'm using some type of negative stimulus to, to get the person to veer back right into the lane that I want them to be in. So that can be through hurting a person, God forbid. It could also be through shaming a person, criticizing a person, making them feel guilty, withholding love, stonewalling them. We don't usually think about these as, you know, the typical ways to influence people. But let's be honest. It is probably a fight-or-flight method, but it's a go-to. And maybe there are situations where control is necessary and even using some type of negative stimulus to reinforce that is appropriate and healthy. But we have a much more powerful way of influencing control, of getting control. And, and most of the times, I'm sorry, we have a much more powerful way of shining our light, of being influential, of influencing people. And in most cases, the more we use control, the less we're able to build that respectful and connected relationship that's discussed and advocated for in the Tanya. So, here, the Alter Rebbe also discusses influencing people. For this, he brings a Mishnah. The Mishnah says that um, Hillel, the great sage Hillel, said, everybody should be like Aaron, Moshe's brother Aaron. What did Aaron do? He loved people. And he drew them close to the Torah. So here you have influence, a moral influence, trying to encourage people to have more integrity, more connectedness, live a soulful life, love people, and draw them close to the Torah. The insight that the Tanya brings is very, is very surprising. It doesn't say love people in order to draw them close to the Torah. But it gives two kind of, it's two freestanding pieces of advice. Love people and bring them close to the Torah. And that is very intentional to teach us that we need to love people. And that love is not a manipulative love. It's not 
in a means to an end. It's not that I will practice these social skills, respecting a person, thinking about how great they are, understanding how we're connected, all these things that generate the love, because I need to have a moral influence on you. No. That is important to do as an end in itself. Every time I'm able to love a person and think positive, positively about that person, that is doing exactly what Aaron wanted me to do. Another piece of advice, try to be a good influence on other people. Try to have a strong moral parameter. Try to stand for something. Stand for something. When people think about you, they think, oh yeah, that's a person that's, you know, kind to others. That's a person that has faith. That's a person that's resilient. Two things. And if you're good at one, the Alter Rebbe says in the Tanya, if you're good at one but not the other, meaning if you're good at loving but not so good at being an influence, that's okay. Because you were good at one. So you did one out of the two things that Hillel recommended based on what our own advocated and stood for. That's good. So we need to be careful with our influence that we're not, we don't, we don't love people in order to influence them. We're not looking to say, I need to build relationships because I need to influence you. I need to build relationships because it's a mitzvah to love other people. But what about the influence? That's also a good thing. So here the Alter Rebbe says, oh, but remember that the best way to influence is through the love. Even though those two pieces of advice from Hillel are not contingent on each other, but they are juxtaposed. They are right next to each other. And that's teaching us that the best way to influence is through love. And in fact, the Tanya gives a very, very strong imagery of this love. The Alter Rebbe says, you need to pull somebody in with thick cords of love. That's how loving you need to be if you want to have an influence on another person. So when it comes to selling our product, okay, maybe not the product that we're trying to sell to make a living, although it may work in that arena too. When it comes to selling our most valuable product, our most valuable influence, which, mean, which is shining the light that's unique to me, representing the goodness that I have to share with the universe, the way that I can best do that is through having a good relationship, a loving relationship with other people, with all other people. In fact, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says that this was one of the very first commandments in the Torah. The first commandment in the Torah is to be fruitful and multiply. That's what God told Adam. But along with that commandment to be fruitful and multiply, God also said, fill the world and conquer it. Fill the world, I get how you do that. He just said, be fruitful and multiply. Conquer it, what does conquer it really mean? Does that mean that Adam was supposed to rule the animals? Well, it's very hard for a human being to to dominate animals, especially before the advent of a gun and a rifle and a cage. Conquer it. 
And plus, there were many animals. There was only one, one man. What did God expect? So conquer the world means to direct people's attention past materialistic pursuits towards a much more meaningful pursuit, towards a mission, towards a God-oriented life. That's what conquering it means. And here the Rebbe gives another layer of insight. Rashi says, based on the Talmud, on this verse, that it's actually more of a man's nature to conquer. And from this, Rashi infers that the whole verse is actually, referred, is actually referring specifically to, to the man. Be fruitful and multiply, it's a man's mitzvah. Even though Rashi says that, the, that at that point, Adam and Eve were one being, they were an androgynous being, so really, Eve heard that too, but it was directed to the, the male side of this androgynous human, this male-female human. God said, be fruitful and multiply and conquer the land. Because it's a male, a male, a male nature to conquer. Well, the Rebbe said, lest you think that, the to that God is saying, men, it's up to you to redirect the world to more meaningful living, to encourage people to go past the natural go-to, which is being focused on materialism, being self-obsessed, and look, about, look to more meaningful pursuits, lest you think that that's just a man's job. No, that's not what Rashi is saying. That's not what the Talmud is saying. The Talmud is saying that when it comes to hardcore conquering, or what we mentioned before, control, Sub subduing somebody's will and forcing them to take on my view, that is a more male-oriented perspective. Even though I must admit I'm very guilty of doing that myself. What about Eve? What about Chava? What about Isha, the woman? The Rebbe says, no, she was given the same, the same job, the same mission to influence the universe. But God didn't use the word conquer. Mm, that's not so feminine. That's not so classy. That's not befitting for her. Since this being was like mainly Adam at this point, God's like, okay, I can use the word conquer to him. Once she emerges, once God created her, I'm not going to use that word anymore. I think influence is a better word. The Rebbe says, what about a woman? What, is, what does she do? Where do we have her, her signature style of influence? Well, for that, we can look to King David, because King David says, Kol kevuda bat melech penima. The glory of a woman is her inwardness. A lot of interpretations about what that means. But according to this interpretation, the Rebbe says, that the glory of a woman, imagine a king's glory. Imagine the impression that that makes upon you when you see the king's glory. How does a woman make that type of stamp on the universe, that type of indelible, unforgettable impression on the people around her? Panima, by working on the person's inside. Not by forcing them to submit to my will but by trying to 
develop a meaningful relationship with them so that their inside will, will, will be in sync with my inside by the power of suggestion, the power of persuasion, the power of setting a positive example. All of that allows the other person to come to it on their own instead of feeling like they're dominated by me. So in a sense, it's a lot easier. I don't need to feel like the weight of the world of, of changing another person and influencing them for the positive is on me because what I need to do is be me. What I need to do is develop an authentic relationship with another person. And then the good that I have to share, and we all have that good to share because Hashem gave us an infinite resource of good to share, much more than we even know about ourselves. But we still know a lot about ourselves, hopefully. That will have an organic way of influencing another person without them having to feel defensive about it. But here's the last thing the Rebbe said. In our times, both men and women need to use this and only this power of influence, the power of pinima, the power of building an internal relationship that has a positive influence on another person. And that the men need to move over, whether it's a friendship, a, so to speak, equal relationship, whether it's a teacher-student relationship, parent-child relationship, in order for any relationship to be authentic, in order to be influential, there needs to be integrity, there needs to be sincerity, there needs to be true value, respect, connectivity between me and the other person. And then the thick cords of love will automatically have the desired effect of being influential. So the Rebbe said, the woman had it all along. Maybe there were times back in the day where we needed a little more force, a little more aggression, but not now, not now. Now the men need to move more towards the kol kevuda basmelech penima, the internal relationship, that type of influence. So to sum it up, we said, how to win friends and influence people could be a little bit more in the realm of what Alexander the Great was looking for. I need to bring something external to the table in order for the relationship to be worth my time and effort. You need to bring something to the table in order for it to be worth my time and effort. I need to get the cop to dismiss that speeding ticket. In the Torah model, it is a mitzvah to have a relationship with as many people as I could. Everybody, actually. The language in the Tanya is migadol va'ad katan, from the greatest person to the lowest person. I need to find a way to, to be connected to them, to love them. How do I do it? Think about the fact that this person is very respectable. I remember when I was in school, I just joined a new school for a ninth grade. Um, and uh, the teacher gave us an exercise. She said, I'm going to write, every, everybody write your name on the top of the page. I'm sure you're familiar with this exercise, by the way. And then I want you to give this paper to the person sitting, sitting next to you. 
And now, you know, take the paper that you have and on the first line write something nice about the person whose name is on the top of the page and then fold it and then pass the paper on. And at the end of the game, every single person writes down something nice about the person whose name is on the top of the page and then you give it to them. They see what everybody thinks, pos what everybody thinks of them. So I had just joined the school for ninth grade and, and most of the girls had come from, you know, from the same school, from the same elementary school. So I said to the teacher, I don't really know people well enough to write something positive about them. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, if you've been in their class for a few weeks and you still don't have one positive thing to say about every single person here, then you need to look at yourself and see what you're doing wrong. I, I don't know, well, you know, that was, it wasn't so 2022, you know. <laughs> I don't know if that would go over. I don't know if I could get away with saying that as a teacher. But I remember that even though it was many, many years ago. It was almost 30 years ago. I don't remember much from ninth grade, but I remember that. Because if I can't notice something about positive about somebody else, then, then that's on me. So truly valuing another person and articulating it, feeling connected to another person, not just in spite of my differences, but because of our differences. Because it takes all type, and every body part is valuable. And if that means winning friends, yeah, it probably will win you some friends. But my point is not to accumulate friends. My point is to, my point is to, is to connect with other people. Because that's, that's one of the most valuable things that we can do in life. And then to share my light, to influence others through the power of, of being me and generating relationships and trying to uh, speak my truth and hopefully that will resonate with, with, with you and your truth and be meaningful to you. And if not, that's okay. Because my love for you was not contingent upon that. And to conclude with this story, someone once approached the Lubavitcher Rebbe and said, do you realize that there is like a, a, a whole popularity culture around you? And he was saying it in a critical way. Like, you probably don't want this. What would you say if you were the Rebbe? Would you say, like, believe me, I wish they would be less into me. <laughs> I try to stop it. What can I do? What would you say? Or would you say, yeah, well, that's what a leader does. You need people to be into you. Well, here's what the Rebbe says. The Rebbe said, of course, the Rebbe smiled. And the Rebbe said, my heart overflows with love for every Jew. And they can't help but love me back. So Hashem should help us that we should, we should see the value in other people. We should love them. And um, if that helps for them to love us back and for us to build even a greater community of supportive friends, then that will be a wonderful fringe benefit aside for the most important mitzvah in the Torah. Thank you so much for coming and to learning with me today. 
Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.